Talking to white kids about race and racism is a hard thing for white parents to know how to do. Most of us didn't learn how from our parents. There are an awful lot of white people who I think are well-intended, who fundamentally do think that it's racist to even notice race. I'm Dr. Ann Hallward, and this is Can We Talk from Safe Space Radio. Coming up, we'll explore the challenge of how and when to talk to white kids about racism in a way that can make a difference for the next generation. If you can't talk about something, often you become so afraid of it you can't even let yourself think about it. Talking about it might even have a mental health benefit, not only making society better, but making our families stronger too. I think he felt like it was a big thing, you know, even at that young age, it was sort of a big thing that he and I were talking about, and he really likes that kind of connection. That's all coming up on Safe Space Radio. This is Can We Talk, a show from Safe Space Radio about the things we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. I'm Dr. Ann Hallward, a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine. This hour, we'll be exploring how white parents talk to their kids about race and racism and why this conversation matters for the future. Most parents of color have a lot of experience explaining race and racism to their kids. But for white parents, the need to talk about race and racism may not be as clear. I'm a white parent, and I know that many of us who are white were raised to think that even talking about race is racist. I was taught that because everyone is equal, it was wrong to even notice race. This left me feeling confused and uncertain about differences that were in plain sight. Even now, part of me can feel nervous if I use the word white to refer to myself or the word black to refer to someone else. It feels like I'm breaking a taboo. I decided to take an informal poll among all the white people I ran into one afternoon. I asked, when you were little, how did your parents talk to you about race and racism? They didn't. Um, they didn't. It just never came up. To my parents' credit, they made it clear that it was important not to be bigoted, to not, you know, make racial judgments or discriminate. They were very clear about that. But what was interesting is we did never talk much beyond that. I don't really remember seeing people of different races other than my own, except for on TV shows like Sesame Street and The Electric Company. It's not something we ever sat down and talked about. Racism takes an enormous toll on both the physical and mental health of people of color. Hundreds of studies document the fact that racial discrimination puts people of color at risk for illness, including depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, hypertension, diabetes, and poor pregnancy outcomes. But those of us who are white may overlook what it does to us inside to live in and benefit from a system that denies the full humanity of others. We discount the ways that our lives are limited when we don't have meaningful relationships with a diverse range of people, and our capacity for empathy is reduced by the dehumanization surrounding us. Guilt or fear can block our ability to even think clearly about racism. That's what author Robin D'Angelo calls white fragility. And yet, facing what is true can actually strengthen our mental health. Learning to address racism can actually help white folks feel stronger and more grounded. It can make our families more connected and resilient. This show is an invitation to white parents to explore some uncomfortable truths about the ways that we perpetuate racism when we do not give our kids the language to see it, name it, and stand up to it. Dr. David Kemp, author of the White Ally Toolkit, puts it like this. It is vital that white folks take on the work of fighting racism. It's a burden for people of color to have to always do that work. And so what we need to do is to have more white folks talking about how to be a good anti-racist white person. It is vital that parents start teaching that at home very early. This show is deeply informed by the scholarship and input of people of color but we'll be focusing on the stories of white parents and white racial justice experts, not because they're the experts on racism, but because doing this work is white people's responsibility. If you feel uncomfortable, stay with us. This is a safe place to learn.
Debbie Irving is a white mom. She remembers the precise moment when her eight-year-old daughter started asking questions about race, questions that Debbie didn't know how to answer. I was doing the dishes, and I remember her kind of coming up and standing beside me, just leaning against me and not saying anything, which was incredibly out of character. So I sort of knew something was on her mind, and she said, Mom, why did the black kids come to school on the buses and the white kids get dropped off by their parents? And I, and I remember just feeling this flood of, ang- of ad- what I would call now adrenaline, uh, which is a feeling I knew anytime race came up. I said, you know, I don't know. What I didn't say was, and I think we should find out. So I, I stopped the conversation by not only ending my words, but I'm sure my body language conveyed, this is really awkward, I'm uncomfortable, and that's all it takes to send a to send a child a message that I'm not going into this territory again. Did you have a plan in your mind for when you wanted to bring up the subject yourself? Oh, no, absolutely not. Because the most appropriate thing to do about race in my training was to not talk about it. Debbie took the initiative to learn about school segregation and ended up writing the book, Waking Up White. She now collaborates with her friend, Shay Stewart Boulay, the director of a racial justice organization called Community Change, and the writer of the blog, Black Girl in Maine. The two moms give public talks together, often about the stark differences in how white parents and parents of color talk to their kids about race. Here's Shay. You know, for me as a black American, uh, specifically on my dad's side, my my great-great-grandparents were, were slaves. They were enslaved Africans in this country. So just growing up as a child, race was always talked about in my family. I think for me, I think for many black parents, it just becomes, it's, it's just, it's your instinct. You know that you have to have these conversations. So a lot of my earlier conversations would have been with my son. When he turned about 10 or 11, he went from maybe being like five foot two to like five foot seven. And it was around that time when he would have been in middle school that we really started talking uh, more urgently about race. I explained to him that when you are in public spaces, you must always watch how you carry yourself because you will be perceived as a threat in the world, especially once you become larger. Um, so for me, talking about race is about keeping my children alive and keeping them safe. I think about, and this is me speaking as a white parent, you know, I think about how much uh, we get, you know, encouraged to like build up our child's self-esteem and, you know, help them feel safe in the world. And it's very poignant to hear how so much of what you have to do is a matter of survival. My experience as a parent, as a black woman, is that sometimes I am excessively probably, my daughter at 13 would probably agree, a little on the mean side about this. My job is to toughen you up so the outside world doesn't break you, which becomes the opposite of what white parents do, which is let me keep you safe, let me keep you in the bubble. And that sort of protective bubble layer is very much embedded in white culture to me. It's inherited ignorance. And white culture, you know, it's the culture that tells us not to rock the boat. It's the culture that tells us to focus on time and achievement. It's the culture that says hierarchy is the way to organize. It's the culture that says, you deserve to be comfortable. You know, white suburbs were created to keep white people comfortable and to build white wealth. Right, so the flip side of not upsetting your child is helping your child be comfortable. And thinking that discomfort is, I mean, we tell people about, kids about stranger danger. We don't think that's too scary. We tell them about fire, stop, drop, roll. We don't think that's too scary. We teach them sophisticated math in second grade now. Kids are totally up to this. It does not ruin their lives. It does not ruin their childhoods. It's a part of growing up. So I think that what I would say is white people really need to sort of move beyond this need to be comfortable. You know, I think about being on the yoga mat and just like how you learn to be uncomfortable, but then you get comfortable the longer you do yoga. The poses aren't natural. Um, You know, standing on your head is not a natural pose, but the longer you do it, it becomes comfortable. And it's the same way with talking about race. How did the way that you talk to your kids about race and racism evolve over time? You know, I basically had to say, 
everything I've done so far in your lives, 15-year-old and 12-year-old girls, um, has been missing this major piece of information. And I don't know how I'm ever going to make it up to you, but we're going to have to start talking about race every night at the dinner table. And my husband, thank God, came right along with me. I mean, so we would sit down every night and say, oh, listen to this. It was all about kind of exploring what we didn't know we didn't know. Suddenly, we just all started learning together. So it actually made us a much more functional family, I think. Because our neighborhoods and schools are still so segregated, it may take a conscious effort for white people to learn about racism. It often starts with a decision, a wake-up call. So we are about to talk about maybe my most embarrassing moment as a mom. That's Sierra Black. Sierra is a white mom in Somerville, Massachusetts. When her older daughter started first grade, the family attended a school orientation. I was sitting in a corner uh, in the block area with my three-year-old, while my older daughter was playing with some of her friends and like, you know, doing her classroom orientation stuff. And another mom with her son um, came and sat near us and they're both black. And my three-year-old said, I don't want to play with you because you have brown skin and I don't play with children who have brown skin. I was completely horrified, completely mortified. I had no idea what to do. So I said to the little boy, well, I want to play with you. And I turned my back slightly towards my daughter and built a castle with this little boy. You know, she looked surprised that I had given my attention to him. Um, And it redirected her. She didn't She didn't throw a tantrum or anything. She sort of sat quietly for a minute watching the situation and then picked up a block and and joined in. How did the little boy respond in the moment? God, that was heartbreaking. He didn't even seem, like, he seemed a little surprised, but then he just sort of pulled away, you know? And then when I said, he he was 3'2", right? When I said, no, I want to play with you, then he came back and played with me. Like, it was very raw. Reflecting on it, I I always have felt like I should have done more for the little boy. You know, if she had snatched a toy out of his hand or hit him or, you know, done any of these other antisocial things that three-year-olds do all the time, I would have immediately verbally corrected her, said, no, we cannot do that. We don't hit our friends. And I, I didn't address it that directly, I think, because I was ashamed and I was just afraid of the subject. I wish that I had treated it exactly as if um, my child had hit the other kid because racism is violence. That moment really stayed with me. It sort of crystallized. It was must have been 10 years ago now, nine years ago. It really crystallized for me the need to talk to my kids about race and to learn about race myself and look at my own sort of you know, invisible to me as like a nice person, racism. Did you fear that, oh my gosh, she somehow picked this up from me? I think she did. Yeah, no, I think it was a, I think I had until that point in both of my kids' lives embraced this sort of passive colorblind racism where I thought, well, we don't have to talk about race because we're not racists, we're progressives, you know, we always, you know, like, vote for the anti-racist political agenda. And, you know, we live in a diverse community, like I, I was not attending at all to, like, the conscious effort needed to fight white supremacy in my own life in my children's education, like I didn't have that, that consciousness. Sierra, that yeah, it's really profound to hear you own it like that. Like, it's really a sin of omission, not a sin of commission. But that in the absence yeah. of talking, you're saying like in the absence of talking to her, that's the kind of stuff that she's absorbing. Yeah, like I think I had, she didn't have any, I didn't give her anything. And and like the the silence 
you know, the, the silence is its own message, right? Most parents know the fear of a child announcing in public something that they heard us say in private. But parents don't need to act in overtly racist ways for their kids to pick up racist ideas. Kids of all racial identities watch television, they see who is included and how. They know who their family socializes with and who their neighbors are. There's no sort of right moment. It's, it's just an ongoing conversation. Uh, and I guess the other thing to think about is to train yourself and then, like for a white parent, you know, to train yourself and then to train your kids to see what's not there. Right. If we're watching a cartoon show and 100% of the characters are white, mention it. Say, oh, hey, I'm enjoying this cartoon too, but I see that all of the faces on the screen are white. What do you think about that? Like, that's a conversation a four-year-old can have. Children as young as three years old are already trying to explain the world around them. It's not too early to start helping them understand what they're seeing. And there are ways to do this using words and ideas that they can grasp. That's coming up after the break. Support for this program comes from the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and we're happy to share the following public service announcement. Over 40 million people in the U.S. will experience a mental health condition this year. That's one in five of us. Many suffer in silence. They're your friends, neighbors, and loved ones. NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, provides life-changing support and education so that no one walks the path of mental illness alone. Show you care. Walk with us for mental health. To walk, sponsor, or volunteer, visit namiwalks.org. This is Can We Talk, a show from Safe Space Radio about the things we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. I'm Dr. Ann Hallward, a psychiatrist. This hour, we're talking about how white parents talk to their kids about race and racism. I'm a white parent myself, and we're focusing on white parents because we need to do this work ourselves. If we are not talking to our kids about racism, we're perpetuating it. Psychologist Dr. Beverly Tatum describes racism in the United States as a kind of smog in the air, something we're all breathing in all the time. Professor Jennifer Harvey from Drake University in Iowa builds on this idea in her book, Raising White Kids, bringing up children in a racially unjust society. She compares conversations about race to equipping children with a breathing mask. It's important to give all kids the tools to filter through messages of white superiority that society inevitably provides. So for example, if I take my young, young child to the doctor's office over and over and over again, as we all do when our children are young, and she only ever sees doctors who are white, but she also sees that all the janitorial staff are Latino or African-American. And I am not actively talking with her in a number of different ways about difference in racism and anti-racism. She will start to draw conclusions about why all the doctors are white and why all the janitorial staff are people of color. And she will very likely conclude, because it's part of the smog, that, well, white people are the doctors, period. I live in a rural community myself. It's very white, and our public schools are very homogeneous. And I think many communities in the United States are like this. What is the best way for a parent in this situation to talk about race and racism, but also to help their child become comfortable living in multiracial contexts? At a certain age, the conversation can become, you know what, have you ever noticed how white our community is? <laughs> and, um, and actually inviting the dialogue in in that way. For example, um, you know, from when my children were very young, um, I would talk with them about this place we go in Colorado every year that, you know, really is the land of the Ute people. And I, you know, from very young, I would say, yeah, this is a beautiful place. And you know what, I want to tell you the story of who this land really belongs to. We still talk about the sort of history of that land and the moral complexity of the fact that we get to go there now and the Ute people are no longer there. And so you can do that even if you're not living in a diverse environment because every land base in this um, country, you know, first peoples were there first. Um, and so that can generate really amazing dialogues with our kids about their own moral agency and the complex systems we're all living in. Mm -hmm. 
Current events and politics also influence these conversations. For example, how racism plays into the national debate over immigration. Professor Harvey described how she talks to her own kids about this. For example, to my two-year-old or three-year-old, sometimes, you know, Latino peoples are not treated with kindness. And so the government is talking in very mean ways about Latino people right now who are trying to cross the border and feed their families. And so I'm actually talking about racial violence when I say those things, but I'm not talking in graphic ways about um, children being separated from their parents and put in cages. But I am talking, I'm using racial language to talk about kindness and meanness. So that would be in my mind, a developmentally um, appropriate way to start talking about racial violence with a two or three-year-old. But I would talk about kindness and meanness in racial ways. Melissa Unterrecker is a white mom of two kids, ages seven and nine. She talks about immigration with her kids regularly because it impacts their community so directly. Melissa and her family live in El Paso, Texas, where the kids attend schools that are 85% Latino. So it's right on the border of um, the state of Chihuahua in Mexico and right across the border from Ciudad Juarez, um, which has about one, over one, almost two million people. It's the largest binational community in the world. Talking about immigration is part of our, you know, household conversations. Melissa remembers an incident during the Drug Free Week held at her kids' school every year to encourage safety around substances. Students are visited by local firefighters and law enforcement. And then we found out that they also had brought in a CBP officer, a Customs Border Protection or a Border Patrol agent, had come to the school to talk to them. And this created a real terror within the school. And a lot of the kids were very afraid when they saw, and a lot of the parents, when they drove by the school and saw the CBP trucks outside. The initial instinct, I think, of a lot of teachers and parents and some of the kids was they're here for somebody. And so the kids came home and talked to us about um, that had happened and that um, people were scared. And so, you know, that kind of raises this conversation again of like, well, you personally really don't have anything to worry about if you see a CBP agent or Border Patrol truck but some of your friends, they might not be allowed to be here in your school under the law, or their parents might not be able to. And, you know, what that means for them compared to you, and why is that, right? And, and how does that impact their lives in a way that your life isn't impacted, and is that fair? Children have a strong sense of justice and fairness, but it's usually focused on times when they feel unfairly treated. Melissa helps her kids notice the advantages that they have as a way to think about justice for everyone. I want them to know that they they can't or they shouldn't just sit idly by when they see things that strike them as, as wrong or unfair, that they can speak up, even if it's not a time when you want to or you don't feel like it, that you still should, you still have to. And I, I want them to just kind of internalize that and just grow up with this sense of justice and this sense of action. And I think before I became a parent, I didn't realize just how much influence parents have over their children's thinking and behaving. Parental influence is powerful. Professor Jennifer Harvey describes a study of 100 white families where parents taught colorblindness, telling their kids they shouldn't notice difference because everyone is equal, everyone is the same. Researchers interviewed the kids of those families when their parents weren't in the room and asked them, so do your parents like black people? And 38% of those children who were being told, be colorblind, everybody is of equal value, 38% of those kids said, I have no idea. And 14% of those kids in those families said, nope, my parents don't like black people. And so what that tells us is that when we, when we just silence the conversation on race, which is really what colorblind teaching does, it silences the conversation. Our kids are vulnerable to just picking up negative messages, not only about other people, but also in terms of what they think we think about other people. 
It sounds to me like one of the the solutions you're suggesting to this concern is better make sure you're doing something about racism yourself so that you can be a model for your kid. Yes, yes. So in some ways the answer is less about what do you say and more like what are you doing? That's true, as in so much of parenting. When uncle says something racist at the Thanksgiving table, do they see us challenge and engage that? Or do they watch us not say anything so we don't rock the boat? You know, that they learn more from that than what we tell them that we should believe, right? <laughs> Lots of white parents are trying to figure out the most effective ways to bring up racism and creating resources to help us do a better job. One of those people is John Bewin, a white dad who directs the audio program at Duke University's Center for Documentary Studies. With his collaborator, Chenjirai Kumanika, he hosted the podcast series, Seeing White. I grew up in southern Minnesota in a college town, Mankato, a town of about 30,000. And the place was virtually all white, at least in my consciousness. And I think I did grow up with the sense that there, that, that was basically a natural thing, that there was nothing weird about that. And, and now, of course, I see that as, as very, you know, just problematic and clueless. Because it's just, you know, it's, it's based on false notions about, about history and about the place I grew up in. Because, of course, Minnesota had been and still was Dakota and Ojibwe land. And it just, that just sweeps under the rug the fact that there was a, a brutal conquest and theft of Native American land in the, in the place where I lived that was done by the people who, you know, cleared that land away so that people like, like me could live there. Even though the U.S. is becoming more diverse nationally, most white people still live in neighborhoods that are 75% white, which also segregates our schools. When white people aren't close to people of color, it can be hard to develop a deep understanding of the pervasive impact of racism on people's day-to-day lives. So segregation is not only an expression of racism, it feeds it. I grew up with a strong sense of being one of the good white people. So when I would encounter people of color, I would be kind of keenly a, a sensing, okay, what, what is this, does this person understand that I'm one of the good white people? I hope so. Most people have a strong desire to be seen as good. But ironically, for white people, this desire can become an obstacle to addressing racism. The fact is, if we have grown up in the U.S., we've absorbed countless racist images and ideas, that smog we're all breathing. For white people, it can be hard to confront our own unconscious racism. It's vulnerable to stay accountable for things we don't even know we're doing. So the fear of doing the wrong thing can actually make us less likely to get involved. When white people can accept that it is possible to be both a good person and someone who has absorbed a lot of racist ideas, we become more resilient. We can examine the racism we've taken in and work to change it. We can risk making mistakes in the effort to challenge racial discrimination wherever we see it, in our schools, workplaces, and our homes. So a lot of it is, really, honestly, it's, it's, it's not about having the right kind of intentions to be a good person. You know, that's great. But, but so much of it, the most powerful thing by far to me is, ha- is having a, a different version of the history told to me and, and kind of really taking that in in a way that it's like, aha. If you'd have asked me, you know, a few decades ago, how did we get this whole idea of race? How did, or how did, how did this whole racism thing come about? I would have probably said, well, hmm, I think somewhere back in history, uh, people encountered each other. Let's say Europeans went to Africa and they observed people in Africa and said, hmm, they seem to be less advanced than we are. And so I guess maybe that makes it okay for me to mistreat those people. Ibram Kendi, the scholar from American U uh, historian, makes this clear. It's, it was the reverse. People enslaved other people because they could, because they wanted uh, free labor. And they wanted to take it, and so, and then the, 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 the story, the story of the inferiority of African people was tacked on afterwards to explain and justify that. You really have to ask yourself, who are the uncivilized ones in that story? The people being enslaved or the people kidnapping and enslaving other human beings? 
But you don't have to know a lot about history before you start talking about race and racism with your kids. Karina Moltz is a white New Yorker and the mother of two young boys. She felt like she had a pretty good handle on understanding race and racism. Then she went to a workshop at her son Jackson's preschool. One of the things that kind of came to light for me during that training was how much parents of color were talking to their kids of color about race. And it was just something that had never occurred to me to talk about. It was like a privilege I hadn't realized I was exercising. Karina was determined to remedy the situation. So probably a couple of days after the training, I was walking Jackson to school, and we were in Prospect Lefferts Garden, which is a really busy section of Brooklyn. So we're at a big intersection, and there are kind of cars going everywhere and a really heavy police presence. And Jackson had always seen them, and they would be really friendly to him, and they would wave good morning to us, and we would kind of talk about them as we walked. So I remember we were waiting to cross the street, and as we waited, Jackson, who's three, I guess, or maybe almost four, turned to me and said, police really keep us safe. And I felt like this is my moment, you know, and so I said, they do, and you know, police are so important, and they they keep us safe, and they make sure that cars are safe, and they do all this really good work. And then I sort of girded myself, and I was like, you know, and sometimes there are police who don't know how to do their job as well. And he didn't say anything. And I said, police mostly keep us safe, but some police are sometimes too rough with people. And he kind of got that idea of being too rough. So we crossed the street, and we got all the way to his school, which is probably two more blocks. And there was a bodega, and it had all these newspapers and magazines out. And this was right after um, Michael Brown had been killed in Ferguson, and the protests were happening, and there was a lot of coverage. And I, and I sort of saw the newspaper as we walked by, and Jackson saw it, and there was some really graphic image of um, protesters and police on the front page of the paper. He didn't really say anything about it, but he definitely paused and looked at it. And so I said, um, that picture actually is people who are really upset with some police people because they were really too rough with a boy. And he said, why? And I said, I, I really don't know why, but this was a boy who had brown skin. And I don't know why, but it seems like often if police are too rough, they're too rough with boys with brown skin. And he kind of paused, and we were right sort of at the entrance to his school, and he said, well, that's not fair. And I, I was feeling so uh, kind of overwhelmed in the moment. Like, I was glad that I had said it. I couldn't believe I had just told my little boy that this happens. But I was like, you're right, it's totally not fair. And that was that. Karina took Jackson into school and left the conversation there. Then, two weeks later, Jackson brought it up again. So it was after dinner, and Jackson was sitting at the table drawing, and Silas was probably one at the time and was... I vividly remember that he was banging pots in the kitchen because it was really loud. And Jackson looked up and said, if the police are too rough with somebody, they don't kill them, right? And I said, sometimes they do. And it just sort of came out. I, I thought I would have couched it somehow or said something a little more carefully, but I just said sometimes they do. And it's really terrible, and it's something that makes me so upset and so sad, and a lot of grown-ups are working to try to make sure that that doesn't happen anymore. And how did that feel to you after? It was powerful to me to think that he had really taken in that first conversation because he hadn't mentioned anything about it since. And I had this feeling like I was introducing something really terrible to his world. And I knew intellectually that there was a reason for me to do it and that it was important to do. And I have, you know, had and have this desire to keep bad things from him. And so part of me felt like, do I really need to tell him this right now? Like, he's so little. This has never occurred to him, and I'm consciously telling him about this terrible thing that happens. Do you think he worried afterwards? Did you get any sense that he had? I don't think it made him more afraid. I think he felt like it was a big thing. You know, Even at that young age, it was sort of a big thing that he and I were talking about, and he really likes that kind of connection. The parental urge to protect your child is one of the most powerful human instincts. Parents of color talk to their kids about racism as a way to protect them. In contrast, many white parents want to shelter their kids from even knowing that the world can be so violent and so unfair. 
but white parents need to know that this conversation doesn't have to make our kids fearful. If anything, helping them understand what needs to change in the world can build trust and closeness with us. Talking to white kids about racial injustice isn't easy. The huge relief, as with almost everything parenting, is that if we don't know what to say at first, we can take some time and come back to it later. Tim Wise is a dad, a white anti-racist activist, and the author of seven books on the subject. Even with all his training and expertise, he doesn't always know exactly what to say either. On a rainy afternoon when his daughters were five and seven, they were picking a movie. So we're flipping through and we're looking at trailers, and um, the trailer for Evan Almighty comes on. Which, of course, for those who remember the film, Steve Carell plays a congressman or a senator, one who is told by God, who is played by Morgan Freeman, that a flood is coming and he probably should build an ark. And the youngest daughter looked up and she pointed at Morgan Freeman uh, on the screen and said, Daddy, is that really God? And, and then, really interestingly, the older daughter, whose attention was now piqued uh, on this, looks up and she, she looks at Morgan Freeman and she looks at her sister and she laughs and she says... Well, now, Rachel, uh, that, that can't be God. And I knew in that moment that I was going to have to ask her why not. And I said, why do you say that? And she looked back at me and without missing a beat, she says, well, because God isn't black. God is white. And I remember I had this like warm feeling of terror wash over me. I was like, oh, my God. And so in that moment, I let it go because I was so knocked off stride. I didn't know what to do, but I regrouped and I was putting her to bed and I said, uh, you know, that thing we were talking about earlier when the, when the movie thing was on. So when you said that God uh, was white, not black, and I started out once again, asking questions, I said, uh, so what do you know about God? What did God do? At least according to the story, you know, and, and she says, uh, well, uh, God created everything, right? I, oh, okay. So, so God created everything. Okay. So, um, so God created people and she goes, oh yeah, yeah. God created people. So where were the first people? And the reason I asked her that was that I remembered that she had learned that there had been a map in her preschool class, as I recalled, um, that sort of showed the migration of humans out of Africa. So she knew the first people had been in Africa. So I wanted to see if she remembered that. I said, where'd they come from? She goes, Africa, right? And I said, yeah, 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 right. I said, now here's sort of a tough question, but I just want to get your take on it. I said, uh, in whose image did God create people according to the story? And she thought about it for a second. Her eyes got really big and she said, uh, Oh, in God's image, right? I said, right. So let's review one more time. God created people. First people are in Africa. Africans are black and they were made in the image of God. Now, big final question, what color is God? And her eyes got huge and she goes, I guess God could be black. And I said, very good. Literally six weeks later, she comes to me at breakfast. We hadn't talked about it since. She comes to me and she says, Daddy, do you really think that God could be black? I mean, clearly she'd been thinking about that. I think the impulse that parents have is their kid does something or says something that rubs us the wrong way or, or you know, upsets us. And we think, oh my God, we got we to gotta stitch this up right now. But in fact, if we sit with it for a minute and we think about it, you know, five hours go by. But in that five hours, I come up with a couple of questions. I ask her the questions. She handles them. And then she comes out with a different understanding. So I think if we're just willing to make those partial mistakes or even big mistakes and revisit them, if we move from not knowing to being curious that our kids will be in a better place and so will we as parents. In the next part of the show, we'll be looking at ways that white parents can have useful conversations about racism with their older children and how talking can translate into action. That's all coming up after the break. Support for this program comes from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, developing solutions to support strong families and communities to help ensure a brighter future for America's children. More information is available at aecf.org.
This is Can We Talk, a show from Safe Space Radio. We've been exploring how white parents can talk to their kids about race and racism. We'll get a little more specific in this final part of the show. What are some of the facts about racism that white parents need to explain to our kids as they get older, and some of the skills that we want to help our kids develop? One of the key facts that we might not know how to explain to our children is what race actually is. Society often equates race with skin color, but history and science suggest otherwise. Here's Margaret Hagerman, a white professor of sociology at Mississippi State University, on how to explain the meaning of race. I do think that it's really important to teach children that race is a social construct and it's not biologically based. Sociologists and historians can look at the history of, you know, the, the struggle between, of, for power between different groups and see how racial categories are literally constructed as the dynamics of a society shift. And so, for example, there are these, I think, fascinating case, um, Supreme Court cases in which immigrants to the United States from places like India and Armenia petitioned the U.S. government to be categorized, legally categorized as white. And you can see, if you read through this this scholarship and, and, and the Supreme Court case decisions, you can see that these judges are, you know, arbitrarily in many cases and inconsistently coming up with, like literally just making up who gets to be counted as white and who doesn't. People aren't genetically packaged in discrete categories. In fact, there's more genetic diversity among whites than there is between whites and African Americans. The idea of race was invented to justify who got to have power, like the right to vote or own land or work for fair pay. That's why racism is more than an individual saying hateful things. It underlies every aspect of how our society functions and the institutions we rely on. Our banks, schools, criminal justice system, and government are all structured in ways that give advantage to white people. Unequal access to home ownership, education, bank loans, and job opportunities have all caused a huge wealth gap. On average, white families have around 10 times the wealth that black families do. And that's something white parents can talk about with their teenagers. It can help them to understand the disparities they might otherwise use stereotypes to explain. It's never too late to start having these conversations. When I became a parent, I had plans about how to address race with my son. I read him books that featured characters of color. I made sure he spent time with the diversity of people in and out of our home. And I figured that maybe that was enough, at least until he was older. I didn't realize I had to actively counter the racist messages he'd already been absorbing since before preschool. I also didn't realize that giving him the language and the confidence to talk about race and racism would help him be a good friend. Professor Jennifer Harvey sees the opposite effect in her classes at Drake University. It's sort of like students of color have learned calculus and white students have not been enabled to learn basic addition. And so when we don't talk with our young children about race, we are depriving them of a language that they need in order to be, you know, functioning members of this society with all of its racial pluralism. In my classrooms where I teach college, Students of color come into the classroom and I say, we're going to talk about race and racism. And they're like, great, let's go. We're ready. We are so eager to finally have that conversation. And my white 20-year-old students have developed no language to have that conversation. And so they look like deer in headlights and they feel afraid to talk in that space because no one's helped them develop the language to talk about it. And the crisis of that is not only that they've been developmentally unsupported in developing language we all need to have in a society that's as diverse as ours is, but it's also then that what their peers of color hear is like, oh, great, here we go again. We are ready to talk about racism, and these white people don't have anything to say about it. I wanted to learn more about how this plays out, so I reached out to two teenagers, Maria Polanco and Miles Nelson. Miles is a white high school student from southeast Washington, D.C., Maria is a Dominican New Yorker in her first year of college, and she is one of six students of color from the Bronx who worked as production advisors to help us make this show. Here's Maria. We were in one of my acting classes, and we were talking about an assignment, and the assignment was performing a song, and the, the professor was talking about, you know, artistic freedom, and then a friend asked, and she's white, she said that, like, was it okay for us to use a song that said the n-word and 
the professor said, yes, it's okay. Like, it's art. Like, if you need to use it to, again, express a message, like, go ahead, use it. There was only two people of color in the room. It was me and, and another African-American. So we were, like, obviously straight up, we were like, no, no way. Do not use the word. This is something you have control over. You are, you are picking your own song. No one in the class, except for, like, two students, turned around to actually, you know, participate in the conversation. And it was so interesting because I've never been in a space before where something like that or a hot topic is being talked about and everyone falls back because I'm coming from a high school where I was surrounded by people of color. So whenever we talked about anything having to do with justice or social justice, we all wanted to talk about it. Here's Moss. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. White people forever have been shutting down in conversations of race. If they do feel comfortable, they'll probably say something insensitive or uneducated. And if they don't feel comfortable, they won't say anything at all. They won't make eye contact. And, and I, I feel like that's louder, like their silence is louder than if they were to engage. It just showed me that there was no respect for the conversation that was happening, no respect for the people who were present in the room. And so I wouldn't much have rather them say what they had to say or, like you said, say something offensive because then that would have been a way for us to learn and to educate and to really tackle the issue. If we stay silent all the time, what is, what is the point? A lot of the times, it just feels like it's always the people of color doing the work. Yeah. It sucks. Miles is the president of AWARS, Allied Whites Against Racism, a group in his high school that helps white students engage and learn to talk about racism. What do you think a white person needs to know in order to be a good friend to a person of color? It's just to be aware that there's a different experience that a person of color is coming into the friendship with. I've traveled or I travel around the city with a lot of um, a lot of my African-American friends. And a common thing that occurs to us is Metro Transit stopping them, but not me. When we're doing the exact same things, wearing the exact same clothes, we're like just operating very much the same and there's just a, a disconnect where I'm never the one to be pulled aside or confronted or interrogated. What have you done to help your friends in situations like that? Have you done anything before? Um, have you used your prev- privilege in a way that benefits your friends in situations like that? There was this one particular um, occasion where like I, I just was talking to the cop and it was it was shocking to see how after my friend had told the same story that I had told, I, the, my friend told the cop where we were going. We were going to basketball practice from our houses and he then talked to me and I told him the exact same story and he let us go and he was much more pleasant after I had told him the story. And that was just, that was just very surprising to me. Be, I mean, it wasn't surprising. It was just kind of like, it couldn't be more obvious, I guess. Um. As white parents, we can help our kids notice and speak about racism so that they can actively work for equality in everyday situations. We started the show with two friends who are both moms and racial justice educators, Shay Stewart Boulay and Debbie Irving. Part of their goal is to move the conversation about racism from talking to action. Here's Shay again. So I would say there's two pieces around talking to your kids about racism. There's the understanding how structural inequity works, uh, thinking about sort of you know, telling the truth about how this country was built, how wealth was accumulated. But then there's also the practical piece, mm-hmm. the very practical piece of um, you know, I always go back to the incident my family had several years ago. And, you know, we're, we've been called the N-word by a carload of white people. And yet all these white people on this busy street didn't know what to do. You know, it's like, well, we don't know what to do. I mean, like, someone has to know what to do mm-hmm. in these situations. And it shouldn't always be incumbent upon the person who, you know, is suffering the most to have to fix the problem as well. And the thing that white people are better at is coming up to the harmed person of color and saying, I am so sorry. The thing that the white person is much more hesitant to do is turn to the other white person and say, 
you know, can I have a word with you? What are you thinking? Um, to do an intervention, you know, divert the situation and, and, and give a consequence, white person to white person consequence. Like, that's not okay. This just landed on me wrong. You know, I'm not saying this because I just want to protect my friend. I am offended by what you just said. This isn't the country I want to live in. In interviewing people for this show, we heard some of the same advice for white parents repeated again and again. Start talking about race and racism early and bring it up often as part of regular conversation. Invest time in learning for yourself and with your kids. Name whiteness and notice out loud when people of color aren't being included or treated respectfully. Learn about examples of resistance to racism. Let your kids watch you make a difference and encourage them to do the same, especially when it comes to challenging racism among other white people. And finally, don't pressure yourself to get it right the first time. It's okay to be a learner. Are you a parent who talks to your kids about race and racism? Do you remember what your own parents said to you? If you have a story you'd like to tell, or if you initiate a conversation with your kids as a result of hearing this show, please give us a call and tell us about it at this number, 617-600-8419. That's 617-600-8419. We welcome responses and stories from parents of all racial identities. Visit us at safespaceradio.com, where you can listen to my full interview with Jennifer Harvey and get all kinds of other tips and resources for how to talk about racism. You can also subscribe to stay connected to us and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Safe Space Radio. Many thanks to our senior producer, Britt Hansen, program director and editor, Dana Glass, our editorial advisors, Jim Russell and John Bewin, and our production advisors from two organizations in the Bronx, DreamYard, an arts and social justice program, and Here to Hear, an equity and career pathways program, including Maria Polanco, Diana Hernandez, Crystal George, Stella Rafua, Nassim Hamid, and Delilah Santiago, and our co-facilitators, Austin Green and Joshua Poyer. Thanks to Dr. David Camp of the White Ally Toolkit, Manita Bell, Senior Editor at Teaching Tolerance, and Kimberly Williams, Co-Founder of Engaging Across Difference, for your expert guidance. And to our readers, Heidi Marone and Kathy Kidman. Thanks, too, to our Creative Advisory Committee here in Portland, Maine, and to all our donors, especially the Pinkerton Foundation, who made this show possible. I'm Dr. Ann Hallward. Thanks for listening. <laughs>